if the Google of AI may actually be Google. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the question everybody is debating right now. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. There's no greater change than I can think of in my life than AI presents as a potential. President Joe Biden speaking about artificial intelligence. We face a genuine inflection point in history. One of those moments where the decisions we make in the very near term are going to set the course for the next decades. There in the room, as President Biden signed an executive order about AI, was venture capitalist Somesh Dash of Institutional Venture Partners, IVP, an investor in brand new AI companies, as well as some of the first money in at Twitter, Snap, Netflix, and Discord. Walk me through that whole thing. I mean, you, you, you've, because I've never been to the White House other than as a tourist. Well, so I had also not been to the White House except as a tourist, and I considered it a, a, a real privilege and yeah. honor. I am the son of immigrants. You know, I, it was never kind of destined for those of us that came from those roots or my parents were immigrants that you end up in a house like the White House. Um, I ended up staying actually in downtown, so walking distance from the White House, which I think was really, really helpful. Although, um, although it would be kind of cool to Uber to the White House or, or taxi because then you get to say, take me to the White House. That's true. That's true. Next time we'll have to do that. I'll stay artificially <laughs> far away just so I could say that one line. Um, to me, the most breathtaking was when you uh, walk in. I, just the amount of history in that building was frankly overwhelming at points emotional. You know, you see pictures of people you you studied who all lived in that home. And you think about how much a part of American history the White House has obviously been, but a part of world history also America has been in the last, you know, 300 years. And the one portrait that I just remember that was probably the most memorable was there's this beautiful portrait before you go up the first set of stairs of Michelle Obama that was an oil painting. And it just, it really strikes you that uh, how historic it and amazing it was that President Obama and Michelle Obama were in the White House for eight years. And you look at some of the other portraits of a different time, the 1800s and 1900s, sure. and you could see American history kind of evolving within your eyes. The other very comical thing was um, there were 
every 30 seconds there was somebody telling you welcome to the White House just in case you <laughs> forgot. It's like, I know I'm in the White House. You don't need to keep reminding me. Everybody here knows they're in the White House. Um, the other thing I'd note is because there was a there was different live musicians and different, like literally in different parts of the White House. And there was a there was a quartet that was very elegantly dressed and they were playing a beautiful song. And then I listened more closely and realized they were actually playing Thriller by Michael Jackson because it was a Halloween themed. <laughs> so <laughs> I think uh, they were, they found a little bit of comedy in there yes. as well. Um, not to get too, too political, but it was noticeable that there were no pictures of Donald Trump on uh, yeah. the White House walls right now. Um, and, and there I, were pictures of Michelle Obama. There yeah. were certainly pictures of Michelle Obama, yeah. uh, as well as most other presidents and first ladies. Um, that may have you know, been influenced by the person who's president right now, not wanting to so. have yes. Donald Trump on the walls. Um, the other thing I'd note is that there were some uh, very beautifully ornate rooms that were pretty close to you know the large ballroom that we all were ushered into that were pretty vacant. And I asked somebody later on, what happens in these rooms? And he said, well... You know, a lot of people just come in and use it almost like a WeWork, where they just come and work out of there. They do small group meetings. They prep in there. Sometimes people, if they've been working hard, take naps in there. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it actually helped um, humanize in some ways that the, yeah. the building a lot. Um, you know, as far as the exec order was con uh, was concerned, I um, I think it was a wonderful thing that the president, vice president uh, brought together an interesting combination of policymakers, folks from industry like myself, both the startup ecosystem, large tech companies, of course, the venture ecosystem, as well as lots of advocacy groups for um, whether it's minorities or, or um, groups that could be adversely affected. They were very inclusive, you know, in the White House exec order. So many of the people I met uh, actually came from either small city states or advocacy groups that wanted to make sure that a seat at the table. Um, I think it's also important to note, maybe, you know, on your mind, you know, an executive order is not law. Right. And the way I make the analogy is an executive order is like a business plan that an entrepreneur writes when they're formulating what the next five to 10 years could be. It's a template and a blueprint. It is not exactly your board approved PowerPoint, right? And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs I talk to um, don't understand the distinction. They kind of assume this is law. It's not law. It is meant to serve as a guideline to many of the stakeholders that include the cabinet, of course, but also Congress and lots of the different departments, whether it's con whether it's commerce, uh, homeland security, uh, defense. A lot of this is basically a mobilizing tool to make sure people come to the table together. And, you know, in, it's 110 pages, but if you think about the key things in there, um, one is an acknowledgement that AI is brand new, right? This is a new world that, you know, I think most people I've met with in Washington will admit they're still learning about. They felt better knowing that it's also new for us in Silicon Valley, right? And this is, well, AI itself, the technology has been around for a long time. This new age of AI, the kind of post-LLM world, is still only 14 months old. And so a lot, this is kind of the beginning of year two and what's likely to be a 20-year phenomenon. In fact, you said it, we're, it's like we're seeing the GeoCities and Lycos of AI. <laughs> yes. We haven't seen the Google yet. First of all, great analogy. <laughs> Secondly, makes you kind of old. Like, this is not your first rodeo, is it? Right. Yeah, I think that's, well, I'm glad you, you're one of the few people I can mention, GeoCities and Lycos, <laughs> that actually knows what that, that means. That I know what it is yeah. too, right? But I think, I think the, the point I was trying to convey in that is... Um, if you think about the internet era in 
in the kind of early to mid-90s, most of the companies that emerged, um, whether it was, you know, GOCs, Lycos, IVP was an investor actually in the Series A of companies like Excite and Ask Jeeves. You know, these were very successful companies in kind of years one through five, even one through 10 of the original Web 1.0 phenomenon. But interestingly, if you look now after 25 years of kind of the commercialization or 30 years of commercialization of the web, um, Google ended up running away with the entire search market. Yeah. You know, everybody else combined is less than a percent of market share versus Google. I guess if you add Microsoft, that's, you know, the duopoly. Um same with social networking. If you think about it, there was lots of social networks in the early 2000s. Uh, and then when we looked at, for example, Facebook, it's high in our anti-portfolio list. You know, there was 10 other venture-funded social networks that people have all forgotten about, maybe except for MySpace, which is still kind of remembered. But um, all those companies couldn't end up, you know, getting to it. When we looked at Facebook, we had a real question on, could this be a five to $10 billion outcome. Well, here we are. It's a $500 billion outcome. And it's taken a huge percentage of you know the shares in that market. I think there's a good and bad to that. The good is it's important to stay patient, right? These, If AI is going to be similarly a 20-year phenomenon like the internet and the cloud were, most of the companies that we're seeing today aren't going to be the, the gargantuan winners among the startups. The bad of it is it's important also for the government to ensure that there is fair competition and that startups really have a seat at the table and can make inroads. So it's not completely dominated by large public. Well, and I think we learned that lesson with because, you know, the government did did not get involved with whether Lycos or Google or Yahoo was going to be the most important search engine. It didn't get involved in social media, probably to everyone's regret. I think that's exactly right. Um, History, you know, is both long and short. I think people forget that right now, while it may feel like the government is uh, overstepping perhaps and over-regulating, especially in antitrust and other things, for many, many years, whether it's Microsoft in the client survey era at Intel, or it was Google in the search era, or Facebook, you know, in the internet web era, the reality is they were kind of left almost underregulated to a large degree. And that has that harmed a lot of the startups that wanted to compete and wanted to have a fair shot. Um, I want to make this distinction also. I think a lot of people assume the exec order is, is kind of anti-startup and anti-open source. I think the most important thing that the regulators are, are, I think, focused on is, can we secure the United States of America from our nation-state adversaries or from corporate espionage and all the other hacks that could occur with AI from this technology falling into the wrong hands, but also harness the power of open source to make sure it's secure. So I don't think, I think one of the big misconceptions right now, especially on X, FKA Twitter, is <laughs> um, open source is going to be regulated away. And I don't think that is the goal at all. I actually think it's much more, there's going to be lots of different ways for companies to harness LLM. Some of that's going to be through open source networks. Some of that's going to be through closed source, large proprietary networks. Some of that's going to be international. We're seeing actually even right now the data set that suddenly a lot of LLMs are coming out of China that a lot of developers are accessing. And so even in real time, the last few weeks, we're seeing changes in the open source world. And so I think this is such an exciting, but daunting space as well. Um, I think everyone's got to stay tuned because we're going to, what's the most exciting to us at IVP is this is going to be the kind of paradigm shift that you don't get that often in technology. And as a IV, you know, most venture funds have tenure funds. 
you know, over the course of 10 years, you know, if you think about we're only in the beginning of year two, it's hard to even imagine in 2033, 2035, what AI looks like. But what's exciting is uh, we're all going to get to be a small part of that if you're going to be in this ecosystem for the next decade. Historically, it's been, you know, the, the small startup that, that runs away with the new technology and disrupts. Uh, but AI needs a lot of smart people and a lot of data, in which case the future, you know, we were using the analogy of the Google of AI may actually be Google. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's the question everybody is debating right now. And I think, um, you know, in the question itself, there might be an interesting paradox because when you say something like the Google of AI, Google at its core, if even today, if you look at the business model, it's largely still driven by page rank, right? Search is still the gift that keeps giving, right? There are other businesses, of course, like Android, you know, and, and other applications that have taken off for the cloud business for Google and GCP. But it is a search business that's predictable, highly scaled, high margin, and subsidizes a lot of the other investments. In AI, I think similarly, the it, it likely will be that in the LLM world, there will be a few startups, I think ChatGPT being one of them, and maybe a few other verticalized LLMs that I think will be prominent and be, you know, in the kind of 30 to $50 billion market cap category. But actually what's more interesting is it's a lot like the cloud. You know, the initial cloud you know, winners were actually all the public cloud vendors. If you think about it, it was Amazon with AWS, then GCP and then Azure with Microsoft, and then to a smaller degree, AliCloud, Oracle, and others. Now, if you look at who are the big cloud winners, it's actually the application layer or infrastructure plumbing tooling companies, whether it's Snowflake and data warehousing or, you know, Databricks and the new HBI tools. Um, I think the same thing will happen in AI. We're going to see healthcare companies, consumer companies that are going to be massive in impact and scale. They're going to harness all these different LLMs. They're going to be able to utilize some stuff from Google and Microsoft, some stuff from OpenAI, some stuff from verticalized data vendors. I think that's going to be the next five to 10 year journey as this becomes more mainstream and commercial. We're still early on enterprise use cases, just like the cloud was early in 2011, 2012. Today, the majority of revenue for cloud companies is enterprise, no longer just startups. Sandhill Road will be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You have a long history uh, of enjoying and understanding technology. I understand you had an Apple II computer. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a happy and sad story about that. So I grew up in San Jose, California, and I went to public schools, uh, actually through undergrad. I went to UC Berkeley for undergrad. And um, I was always somebody, my parents worked in the technology industry. Uh, My father actually worked at IBM. And I I still remember the day he brought home, you know, the first kind of IBM PC. But it was a hard thing to use. MS-DOS was pretty uh, rudimentary to say the least. And as a young kid, it was clear this thing, you had to know command line interface to be able to get anything done. Uh, And then I came across an Apple II, you know, in our school system, and it was just a game changer. Now, laughable today, if you think about what that Apple II computer was. You know, one of my old bosses, Frank Quattron, always made the analogy that like, that today could literally, you know, be the amount of memory and computing that could, you know, be measured in like, you know, picometers basically, Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's the chip in your fuel pump. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but at that time, what it, I think, galvanized for me was an excitement about what technology can do and how much fun you could have with it. I think the brilliance, if you think about that era, whether it was, um, you know, initially IBM, you know, but really Apple over time, is humanizing computers. So they were no longer the mainframes of the 60s and 70s that sat in massive computer labs and research centers across universities and uh, government-sponsored institutions. It became things that people use in their homes. And I, you know, I was very inspired growing up in Silicon Valley. We'd drive in the 280 and you'd see this building right off the 280 and it had a colored apple with a bite taken out Mm -hmm. of it. I was always fascinated with that as a kid. And I would always ask my parents about what is that and why does someone take a bite out of it, not the whole thing? And I think that was the genius of Apple and Steve Jobs is being able to like actually catch the fancy of young kids. If you look at today, you know, I have young kids, even to this day, Apple products, you know, 40 years later are so ubiquitous in the minds of our kids. And to give Google a lot of credit, the Chromebooks have been game changers in education in K through 12. And so that I think focus on education that, you know, Apple initially did and Google's done has been amazing. Um, the, the sad story with Apple too, though, is that I went to a public school in San Jose. And um, even though we had lots of really bright kids, a lot of kids were like me, kids of immigrants uh, and very academically oriented. Our school was perennially under budget and, and did not, uh, sorry, over budget and didn't have funds coming in. And so even in high school, we actually still had Apple IIs when, <laughs> when nearby Cisco had basically like been commercializing Ethernet connections and, and you know, high-speed Internet connections for LANs and WANs. We were still using Apple IIs in high school, which was sad. And I, and, um, I think hopefully you know, in the next 20 years, we figure out how to reapportion public school education so that you know, not just kids who go to private schools, but also kids who go to public schools get access to good technology that they can utilize. I am constantly surprised. I've lived in California in the San Jose area for 20 plus years. Um, But when you think of, there are more PhDs per square mile than anywhere else, I think, in the world. Uh, You know, our houses are worth millions of dollars. Uh, Generally speaking, the median income in, in Santa Clara County is very high compared to, and my kids went to public school too. They're solid. 
they're nice. And to every teacher out there, my parents are both teachers. I know you're working hard. But you'd think Silicon Valley would have, how are we not spending most of our money on the school systems? Some of that has to do with, um, when we say Silicon Valley, we're really thinking about the commercial entities, the companies that are geographically in this area that are innovators and the right. market caps and cash balances. But think about what you just said also. I went through this myself. If you're a part of San Jose Unified School District, like I was and my wife was. Yeah, and my, my kids were. Was, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the delta in the San Jose Unified School District was and is pretty stark. You have certain areas that have high degrees of affluence and high per capita median income and highly educated with graduate school degree parents. Like my school was one of those. Um, but then you had other schools where a lot of people uh, didn't have high school diplomas. You had only 40 to 50% going to college. And they were all part of one big school district. And sure. I think that's a microcosm of California. California as a state, if you think about it, would be like the fifth or sixth largest GDP in the world if it was a country. But in some ways, there's disadvantages that they don't have the ability to be able – it's got such large uh, square footage, I mean, mileage in terms of the area of the state and population – making a decision at the state level that's both helpful to one part of the economic spectrum and the other is difficult. So you end up kind of, whether it's the teachers they teach to the middle or the school funding, it's sort of apportions appropriately based on averages. I felt it firsthand where many of um, the theory at that time, and I, I have to profess I'm not an expert anymore. I have left San Jose a long time ago. Um, the theory at that time was if you get the best T1 connections and the best computers to mm -hmm. those kids who need inspiration, um, like where there were certain schools where there's about 45, 50% graduation rates to go to college, give them the best tech stuff. And the kids at the really good schools, they're going to be great either way because they have good stuff at home and they're from affluent families. My issue with that was um, I think there are other variables that actually matter a lot. And I, I I think the biggest one I saw was uh, going uh, – actually, I met a young entrepreneur a few years ago who was, had a nonprofit doing this. Just going to – there's refresh cycles at every tech company. So mm -hmm. if you go to an Intel and say, hey, you guys are going through an IT refresh cycle. What are you doing with your old stuff? There's so underutilization of actually being able to take that old equipment and being able to bring it into the schools. And these things are perfectly fine. They may not be great for like the NVIDIA chip designer anymore, but they're perfectly fine for a 10th grader. Sure. And – I hope that the schools will be more scrappy and be able to procure more of that recycled equipment or donate equipment. It is happening more than it used to when I was in school from what I've heard, but it's still not addressing the needs. And I also implore that tech companies themselves should think a little bit about this. Yes, on one hand, you're a global tech company, your employees are hybrid, you know, you're half in the office, people are all over the world. But, you know, this is an area that has really fostered an ecosystem that's created so much economic gains. It's so important um, for that to, I think, be fostered in K through 12 education. It's one of yes. the best things that America has. And if that goes away, American competitiveness will also be affected in 25, yes. 30 years. Uh, you know, the, the, the number of companies within a 20-mile circle of where you and I are sitting right now have created so much wealth in the world that it sometimes frustrates me that you think, well, hold on, why are we not able to pour money into into the, the, the children of the people creating the wealth? I think as I've grown up here and seen this, there's stages of companies. I will give companies like Salesforce, Adobe, 
Google a lot of credit. Many of them have had um, great corporate philanthropy programs, have done a lot in the community. Uh, the nonprofit sector has done lots of things. We individually at IVP uh, and collectively have supported many of them over the last few decades. But I think the bigger thing is um, just making people conscious that you can be globally minded, but locally focused as well. Yeah. You can do both. They don't have to pick one. Some people have this false dichotomy of, well, you know, Google may happen to physically have a building in Mountain View, but we're really a global product with global users. Yes, we agree. But as much as, you know, philanthropy can help solve some of the big global issues, it's also important to be able to, like, take care of local communities because yeah. that's where the biggest needs sometimes exist and are least filled by local budgets and municipal uh, municipalities. So, you know, one I'll, I'll share a story that happened earlier this week. Um, I went to lunch in San Francisco and um, was waiting for my table. And I noticed an elderly gentleman come in and sit next to me. And um, the the he looked familiar, but I couldn't quite place him. The staff kind of greeted him and they sat him. And I realized it was Arthur Rock. And, and you know, just for those who don't know, Arthur Rock really was one of the founding fathers of venture capital. And, um, you know, I, and I, I had an inkling of this, but I looked it up right after on Wikipedia Arthur Rock was, I think, the first person who actually coined the term venture capital in the 60s. And he had actually been the one who uh, had a personal connection with folks that were at Shockley. He, uh, when Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore decided to leave to start Fairchild, he was the one who basically raised his hand and said, let's do this. And, and that was probably, that was the beginning. And that then spawned into Intel, True. where he was the founding investor. Uh, but beyond that, one thing I did not know that I learned was, Arthur Rock also, when Intel was getting started, they were thinking about how to do wealth distribution. Now, those founders could have created a system where they took all the economics for themselves and Arthur could have, you know, basically there was no precedent, set it up so that he, the venture capitalist, would have had the lion's share, almost like a private equity style control ownership. He didn't do that. They actually set up a system of stock options that even today is being used so much. The four-year vest and the one-year cliff was something he kind of came up with apparently in like, 48 hours on a napkin. <laughs> and that is still being used today, right, with companies. And I bring that up just to say, you know, Arthur Rock today is more focused on education in San Francisco and in California more broadly, K through 12. Um, and I think he noted that, you know, it is so important to do both, to create these great global companies through venture capital, which is such a powerful source, but also to be able to provide means and education for uh, American kids all around the country. If not, we're going to lose our competitive edge to other places. And so I just thought it was remarkable that we we still live in an area and in a time where the founding fathers of venture capital, while aged, are still around. And there's a lot to learn from them. Your grandmother was very important. Tell me why. So my... Um, my grandmother, my family comes from India, from eastern India, in a state called Orissa, now pronounced Odisha. They keep changing the pronunciation. The voice of Somesh's grandmother, Manarima Manapatra, perhaps the region's most famous writer and poet, author of more than 40 books. Her father, my great-grandfather, was a freedom fighter. He went to jail twice during the freedom independence movement. Um, most people will know, but... India was actually a British colony uh, from the mid-1800s until 1947. Um, my great-grandfather uh, became very involved in the independence movement. And at that time, like many of the colonial places in, in Asia, uh, there was no free press. The British basically only published in English, actually, the Daily News, 
um, because they did not want people to exactly know what was going on. And they were, they were very uh, knowledgeable that most people didn't know how to read or write in English. Uh, so it was really to communicate back home to folks in London. Uh, they started a secret press um, for which they were actually imprisoned uh, that actually published in the local language. And they would secretly at night uh, start publishing what was really going on in the native language, Oria. And uh, after independence, uh, actually, my grandmother was born when my great-grandfather was in jail. Uh, so it's a, that's an interesting you know, piece of family history. Um, he became the editor of that newspaper. He continued on as editor until he was 102. And then my grandmother, actually, after he passed away, became the editor-in-chief. And she was a pretty amazing person. She had four kids, including my mom, and actually went back to school, uh, ended up graduating top of her class, became an economics professor, uh, the equivalent of like the poet laureate in the state we're from in India. Um, but really, both she and my great-grandfather always did social service. Anytime there was a natural calamity, she mobilized resources and, and goods and brought them to some of the most, um, you know, cyclone and flood-torn villages in the state. She advocated for women's rights. She was a big advocate of LGBTQ rights way before it was commonplace to do so. So I think she wore multiple hats. And when she passed away, um, it was interesting. Like a lot of my family members actually learned on Twitter because the Prime Minister of India, Prime Minister Modi, um, tweeted about her and her life. And I think that, and they gave her full state uh, burial, which was you know, a huge honor. But come on! You're hearing the sound of mourners from news coverage of her funeral two years ago. I spent a lot of time with her. I was very influenced with um, just a lot of the stuff I saw her do for policy, advocacy, and social rights. Now, interestingly, a lot of what we're seeing now is India come to the forefront itself. Mm -hmm. Like the Indian diaspora has been pretty prominent in Silicon Valley, like my parents and others, since the 1970s. But now what we're seeing is actually... India as a country has more political stability. It's got GDP growth north of 7%. And even in our day-to-day, -day, what we're seeing is a lot of AI founders, a lot of infrastructure founders, consumer companies. Many of them are Indian immigrants, kids of Indian immigrants. Many of them are very comfortable, like the Israeli community, of going in and out of Silicon Valley and Bangalore or you know, San Francisco and Mumbai. And I think it's become more and more seamless. There needs to be more direct flights. I've asked the Indian government to do more <laughs> direct flights from SFO. But... Um, there's a lot of similarities to the Israeli tech community uh, and the Indian tech community. And the U.S.-India uh, relationship is so strategic, they're going to be natural allies in many ways for the next, you know, 50 years. And I had the privilege of being in D.C. when Prime Minister Modi visited this summer. And I got to see firsthand just how much excitement there is in the tech ecosystem for doing more with India. Tell me about your grandmother as a poet. What did she write about? A lot of her poetry actually um, had to do with the role of women, um, the the poorest, the destitute, many of them. So I actually don't, I'm not fluent in the native language. My mom tried to teach me. I lost, you know, it wasn't offered as an AP class in no. San Jose Unified School District. And so, but um, in the translations I've read, a lot of them have to do with identity is probably the common word I would use. And specifically, she, at a time where it was not, uh, common to do so. She spoke with the voice of of women, both working women, women who weren't working, married women. Um, I just remember uh, when she visited, she would go to places like Yosemite and would just be so enthralled with seeing these places that we all take for granted as Californians or Lake Tahoe. And instead of talking, she would just take out this this pad in, her, in the back of her Toyota van and she would just start scribbling stuff down. And they ended up being these award-winning poems right later on um one thing i do remember 
she was very, uh, she wrote a poem that was, I think, pretty hard hitting. And I remember reading it. It was something like, it, it translated to America, everything has a price, but does everything have value? Right. And I think she was noticing coming from a place where people were, there was much more poverty, you know, in the part of India she was from than in Silicon Valley. She noticed how, you know, the capitalistic culture had everything, everybody was so well versed in transacting and so fast at it. But then the joy that people had that I saw in my own relatives when a light bulb would come to the village or someone would get a refrigerator, right? That was different than when what she saw here where people kind of took a lot of that stuff for granted. So I just remember that one poem a lot. So Mesh Dash of IVP. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.